Smart Council is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Joshua Moore is a counselor at Alternative Behavioral Therapy in Vancouver, Washington, who specializes in neurofeedback and trauma. Reese Basimio is a counselor at New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon, who specializes in addictions, sexuality, gender, and spirituality. Thanks for listening and for joining the conversation. Welcome to Smart Counsel, the farewell letter. Smart Counsel provides perspectives and resources to providers and students on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Basimio. I'm Joshua Moore. And we are in the studio with Michael Banis today. Thanks, Michael, for coming. And how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me today. Excellent. Glad you're here. So for the uh, for the listener who does not know you, uh, who are you? What do you do? And uh, what does it have to do with counseling? Yeah. Um, so my name is Michael Banis, and I do business development for Recovery Ways, which is a program that is located out of Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, licensed for mental health and chemical dependency. Um, the objective of my job is to build relationships here in the community of Portland, as well as those in Southern Washington as well. So when someone is in the need of residential care, I uh, can walk them and the family through the process of getting into treatment, working out the insurance details, be there for them to be supportive uh, while their person of concern is in treatment. And then on the back end, I help set up aftercare services or Excellent. help an individual find therapy. Hmm. So sort of a sort of a case management job. Lot and lot of case. A lot of case management. Ah, <laughs> oh, bless you. <laughs> are, you. are you based out of here? Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Very cool. Live right in Portland. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which kind of speaks to a dynamic, maybe a maybe a hidden dynamic within the the addictions counseling field in particular, where uh, it doesn't stay local all of the time. Uh, the way that. Strictly oh. mental health, air quotes. It, it, we can yeah. have a discussion just on that. Like, right? no, like what are the benefits <laughs> of not staying local? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I did a geographical change. You know, I don't mm. hide the fact that I'm in recovery for about mm. six years. Um, May 10th of 2013 is my sobriety date. Congratulations. Um, thank you. And I believe that doing a geographical, at least for primary care, kind of really allows somebody to release themselves from the codependent family members or the drug dealer that could just come down and pick them up. Um, yeah. It removes them from an environment and allows them to take that mask off that they feel they have to wear in front of everybody it, that they like know. It's like they need to go into witness protection from themselves. Yeah, right. <laughs> Absolutely. I've often talked about that with, with my people doing recovery work. Um, uh, they don't always fully know just how much needs to change to yeah. really sustain recovery mm-hmm. because I tell them, well, it's your whole person that's addicted. And if we're going to factor in systems theory, it's actually your whole family system that's addicted or connected to the addiction. This is why Alan on exists, by the way. Right, oh, right, yeah. right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just referred someone there the other day. Good for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, but the reality is that you kind of like need a complete life transformation to really sustain recovery because yeah. addiction is just that devastating. Oh yeah. And include up to, and including a geographical change. So, well. well, it's very deeply rooted. You know, that's, I know when I still go back to New Jersey, like I, I pass the buildings, I, I see the areas and, you know, those illicit memories, whether that be for a positive or a negative thing. Um, now being away from that area for so much time, like I can feel confident walking back and knowing like where to turn to th- for support. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
So then what the, the work that you do now is creating those opportunities for change. So it's Recovery Ways is in Utah and people will go there from a lot of other places, mm -hmm. Oregon, Washington, other states have their mountaintop wonderful epiphany recovery yep. experience that's just sheer joy the whole way <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and some uh, of us are laughing <laughs> yes <laughs> um and then come back and i remember when you reached out to me the idea was you were looking for providers for people to come back to after after inpatient yep. so for aftercare the long term. Well, we know work. that aftercare is a solid staple when it comes to people that are moving into recovery. Um, their mind, either consciously or subconsciously, has not really grasped onto the fact of whether or not I'm going to commit to this change. And when we say change everything, you know, we're we're looking at everything in our daily routine. You know, it's some people can manage full time jobs, and you know, it's just when they come home, they drink or they binge drink. Others, they're using while they're at work. And people just have a tendency to kind of go and forget that everything that's going on in their day-to-day -day life is going to be affected when they remove that that substance from their life. Mm -hmm. So everything indeed. Yeah, I mean that that like I've always had this like interest in development. Like if someone starts using drugs at a really young age, um, do they still have to play catch up? Like you yeah. know what I mean? Like, I mean yeah. that's probably a whole different podcast, but but there's a lot of questions that I have there as someone who has only worked a little bit in addictions. I was mm -hmm. like uh, a skills coach for four years. That was it. You know, it's, I don't know. <laughs> no, that, that totally comes yeah. up and it's a, it's a valid thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when somebody starts engaging with substances, like nobody sets out to be an addict. Yeah. Nobody sets out to be like, I can't wait to turn 21 so I could become an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that's so progressive. And when people actually make that, that turn into addiction or alcoholism to the point where they're so reliant on substances that that change happens slowly for them mm. and it becomes a coping skill. It's one of the ways that, you know, I feel addiction needs to be treated mm -hmm. and primarily it's dealing with root causes and conditions, you know, and in root causes and conditions, we can almost boil that down to the meat and potatoes of being, there's a traumatic event yeah, or multiple traumatic events um, and then there's the co-occurring mental health, the, you know, I'd love to meet the person that's like, I've never been depressed or I've never <laughs> dealt with any anxiety, <laughs> you know, addict or not, it, right. just, it doesn't exist. You know, we all Liar. experience those. <laughs> yeah. And it's part of the human condition. Yeah. And from there, as we start moving forward, like those of us that are more open or susceptible to, you know, drug addiction or mm -hmm. alcoholism, you know, we turn to that as a coping skill. And the reason is simple. It works. It's yeah. great. You yeah. know, it's I'm having a great like it's time. It's too party. good at solving your yeah. problem without being a panacea. It yeah. doesn't solve it at its, its root cause. Mm -hmm. Well, interesting. You, you use language like it's too good at solving the problems because limbically speaking or neurologically, you could neurologically speaking, we could say that's exactly what happens right. in that. Um, again, part of how, you know, you, Mr. I work with the brain, uh, you know, uh, the brain tags things deemed good for survival with a dopamine rush right? to help you remember, Hey, you should do this again and yeah. again and again and again. Uh, and yeah, it, well, it's, it's a massive reinforcement. I mean, it's like, it's like saying that if the mechanism that caused reinforcement was chemically activated, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? That could cause a problem for that reinforcement feedback loop. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know? 
Um, and that's what, that's what addictions are in a way. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a better definition out there, but that's a simple neurological explanation. Oh yeah. I was just actually Mm -hmm. at a CU event. We talked about Mm -hmm. that and it was, it was very interesting because he was speaking on to the fact of how much your brain is affected through like methamphetamine and it's because of the, basically the pleasure receptors are on all cylinders at that point, you know, they're utilizing a substance where we're basically emotionally controlling ourselves through those outside substances, whether it be, you know, alcohol, heroin, methamphetamine. You you collect all these like reinforced associative networks too along the way. So it's like, if every time I go to like this one place I use, Mm -hmm. um, the dopamine response from the drug will reinforce everything that was prior to that. And the closer to it, the more reinforcement. And so now you can't drive by that place yeah. you don't even, without getting this thing that wakes up in your head, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and or even socially, right? you know, exactly. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm out at a bar and somebody mm-hmm. who's quiet or, you know, really introverted, doesn't like to kind of get outside my own bubble too much. Mm-hmm. I have a few drinks and now I'm the life of the party. I mean, yeah. that's reinforcement right there for many people because they mm-hmm. can finally be who they feel they should be, mm-hmm. you know, and that social lubricant, as we say, you know, eventually it just, it becomes, we get addicted to the experiences and that life piece that we get addicted to. So when, you know, going back to that of changing everything, it's additionally your life, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're used to certain things. Like I know if I go to the bar, you know, cheers was famous for a reason that yeah. <laughs> everybody knew my name. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. All that to emphasize that, like, like you said, Michael, nobody becomes an addict by, by accident or for no reason and you know addiction always happens in a context in a, in a system and there's a whole myriad of reasons pouring into that um from here's what's your current stressor current trauma going on your past trauma your attachment history your family lineage all of that feeds into whether or not you will or will not use at all and whether or not that will or will not have like a dramatic impact on you uh and whether or not you'll keep using and um so, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of factors, but, but it all speaks to the, the drug of choice or the behavior of choice, whatever it is serving a function. It, it has a particular role in your life. And, um, and, and that thought I think kind of segues us into like, like if you weren't using, there would be something missing, right? Just to, just to elaborate what I heard you just say. Yes. Or, yeah. and in, on a, on a micro level, it'll say, well, if I'm not using alcohol, then I'll use cannabis and I'm not, and if I'm not using any hard drugs, then I'll, I'll just be wildly depressed and anxious or, <laughs> or I'll use, <laughs> right. or I'll use sex and porn. And, or oh, yeah. if I'm not using those, I'll, it'll be sugar and Netflix. Or if yeah. it's not those, it'll be like obsessive religious ritual or something. Well, I think, I think we also see addicts who are, you know, in recovery and sober, but still engaging in some of those struggles. Like yes. uh, that's been my experience as someone who's had very little exposure mm-hmm. to the rehab side, some, but not yeah. a lot. Well, you're, I mean, you're definitely right. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, my golf addiction mm-hmm. is, is there, you know, whether it's healthy or yeah. not, um, <laughs> it's it depends healthier. on where the bank account <laughs> is laying right there. Yeah. Um, but no, just in general, I mean, we have to find something to substitute yeah. the things that we used to enjoy, you know, and at first where many people kind of get into that, is it a choice? Um, is it a disease? Well, really what it comes down to is, you know, I started going out and smoking weed with my friends and we'd go bowling. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, well, we can smoke weed or go bowling. Well, let's go and smoke weed. It becomes the thing to do. Like, yeah. We're going to do this to go out and have fun. Um, 
you know, you meet somebody new in high school, you, you plan a lot. Yeah, I smoke weed. And then you're going out and they're doing cocaine. It's like, oh, well, you know, I never tried that. And you start doing, you know, you do cocaine, you get addicted to that. And that's how the progression starts. It's, you know, could you have made the decision to just say, no, I'm not going to do cocaine. Yeah, you absolutely could have. But if you're smoking, you know, an eighth a day, it doesn't matter what the substance is. Right. It's really about how you're using it. Right. And when you begin relying on it as a coping skill or just like a survival mechanism of if I don't do this, something doesn't feel right with right. me. And even in those more intense or higher used drugs like heroin and methamphetamine, you actually, you know, you're dealing now with the physical and the mental withdrawals on top of it, where it's like, I know I can do this and feel better. Mm -hmm. But I'm really hanging on what you said, where it doesn't really matter what you're using. What it matters is that you're using something Mm -hmm. and that something has a particular function. It alters your mood. It disconnects you from your experience in some way. It gives you liquid courage, something, something, something. Um, But whatever that goal is that you want to get to whatever that function is you need performed um you know you'll use whatever you need need to 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 do that and if it happens to be a substance it's that and if it's not that it'll be something else oh yeah from from a neurological perspective (laughs) how do you like this so does it sound that you could say an addict um they're with their default mode with their default being that's not adequate to contend with their daily or weekly responsibilities or daily or weekly interactions. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I, so it's like, it's like, you know, I, I, I uh, at, at the default, they're not, they're not functioning well. Mm-hmm. So they, yeah, you there's a, like, there's a root, there's something mm-hmm. deeper than just the substance, Yeah, you know, and support groups will speak to that where mm-hmm. it's, your problem isn't the substance. Your problem is something that's deeper than that. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need to look at. But then you compile shame and guilt on the top of everything. It it just becomes more and more of a challenge to dig yeah. yourself out of that hole. So so we we might have started where our default mode isn't good enough, and we added this you know maybe dangerous coping skill, and now that is creating problems that we're now having a hard time contending with as well. Not just the original problems, but now the problems that our coping skills are causing. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's good. For sure. (laughs) So moving through the different tiers, because again, uh, referencing the, um, so, so the title of our episode today is a reference to, there's a relationship between the addicted person and the substance. Mm -hmm. And that relationship I think is really key. Um, when I, the, the briefest way I can explain what addiction is, is I say there's, there's three components to the, the, the trifecta trilogy, really awful trinity of addictions. (laughs) I'll say there's the substance itself, uh, that, that gets used and a lot of attention can go on that. And, you know, if we focus on things like that, you know, we get things like the, the abolition movement back in the last century where they said alcohol is evil everybody like don't have alcohol and ban it forever which did not work one prohibition (laughs) (laughs) slaves prohibition there we go (laughs) yes prohibition (laughs) i was trying to get on the same page thanks i'm tired (laughs) you're good you're good um but but we can we can camp on like the specific substances yeah. is evil or uh, this is where you get people wanting to cure porn addiction with like covenant eyes or accountability yeah. software. It doesn't actually do any any good at all for the person. Mm-hmm. It just does it just doesn't do any good. 
but then the and so the the substance itself is the, is the first component. Uh, the second major co- component uh, is the person doing the using, and we can put a lot of focus on there. You know, that's where we think you know genetic history and predisposition and early childhood trauma and personality and temperament, the mental health of the person, and why are they using and 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 things like that. Well, not quite why. Like, have they had a brain injury? Have they had a brain injury? (laughs) Things like that. Yeah. Uh, And there's a whole lot we can look at there. Like, is this person choosing this or are they diseased? Those are questions there. And is that a worthwhile dialogue? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. No, you're 100%. It's not. I mean, when you study the brain, it gets really vague, let me tell you. (laughs) So the third component, which I feel like is the thing that really makes it addiction, is the reason and manner in which the, the person does the the thing whatever it is and uh, and the reason makes all the difference because you could have you know one person using alcohol and it's holy communion it's not abused at all it's uh you know and another person uses it and it's completely devastating and and awful yeah and that that can be true about like food and that could be a problem because we can't just eliminate it absolutely and i think like that's that's how we you know, when we talk about sex addiction, which is where, where I specialize, that that's that that reason is is the really important part because obviously sex is really nice. It's really great. It's really beautiful. We we need it. We need it. Um, but <laughs> there's also a reason and manner in which it is used that can be really destructive. Again, same with sugar and food and Netflix and Facebook. Well, just Facebook is just always yeah. destructive. <laughs> well, being an expert in moderation. Um <laughs> Uh, what I do find is that when an individual finds something that is working for them, they, they're they going to tend to latch on to that. Hmm. You know, the human experience is so difficult to begin with where it's we're trying to find a friend, we're trying to find a social group that we're, we can connect with, you know, the young adult that really doesn't know themselves. And that's really to kind of touch on that point from before. You know, when we talk about somebody getting sober that started using at an early age, well, those social skills, we never developed them because Mm -hmm. our social skills was who can roll the best blunt, you Mm -hmm. know, or who can get this alcohol. Like we learned our social cues from people that were typically in just as bad of shape, you know, emotionally as we were. Mm -hmm. So when we start taking those substances away, we don't have those social skills. We don't have yeah. that way of thinking of being able to tackle day-to-day well, life. I mean, I, I almost kind of wonder if your self-esteem is not necessarily low. It's just tied up in all these behaviors. Yeah. I mean, that, well, we that, don't know that, who that we are yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. when you take that substance away mm-hmm. and, you know, that relationship that we speak of when it comes to an addict and their drug of choice there is a relationship there. Mm, You know, when we remove that, we need to grieve. We need to kind Mm. of go through the process of like, I'm okay with letting this go because I know that it's destructive. The scariest thing for me when I got sober anyway, it wasn't, oh my God, what if I relapse? Because I knew what to expect if I relapse. It might be shitty, but I knew what it was. Okay. The scariest thing was, what if this works? Hmm. That I didn't know how to handle because I've never done it before. You're basically going to ask a 27-year-old to be a 27-year-old that doesn't even know how to be a productive 18-year-old because I spent my time basically working around those aspects of like, and this I feel can be done really at any age, you know, people can drink into their 40s and everything can be fine. They go through a traumatic event and then they 
turn to a substance such as alcohol and they continue on down that path. And, you know, within years, it could be a complete downward spiral where five years ago, I never even had an issue. So as people are progressing with their relationship with the substance, it really just becomes a matter of fact of where did you start to take it to the next level and start to abuse it? And what does that look like if I have to let that go? Because what am I going to supplement in its place? Yeah. And that's something I'm uncomfortable with because I've never had to do that before. I, th- I think this is really essential. I-, I love how you talked about um, grieving the loss of this relationship because I would absolutely agree there. There is a relationship a person has with their their thing of choice, their drug of choice, their behavior of choice. And uh, in all fairness, it, it should be grieved because in all fairness, um, it was nice in some ways. Like it did, it did something. It yeah. was, it was fun. It was pleasurable. It functions, you know, there's a, there's a reason we did it. Um, and to, to gloss over that does it and does an injustice to, to the, to the loss and, you know, it cuts out half of the human experience. Um, well, it was fun. You know, yeah. it, it was a good time. Like I, most of my experiences was a good time. I, I'm a firm believer that, you don't need to hit a a rock bottom per se because you know there's always that trap door. It always goes lower. You know you can bring the bottom <laughs> up. Yeah, um, that's that's good to know. Yeah, <laughs> it's there. Trust me. Um, and you know, because I was one of those individuals, and many people that I've worked with or other people that I know that are in recovery, when it comes to wanting to make that change, and the reason why I choose not to go out and have a drink or go out and you know smoke weed is because the things in my life, I'm not willing to give up mm-hmm. now for that experience. So you found things that you care about more mm-hmm. um, than my that are incompatible with it. Yeah. You know, it's like there's some, there's something more valuable now. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking that in how you talk about there's a relationship with the drug that needs to be ended, altered, etc. Transitioning out of that relationship means transitioning into uh, several other significant relationships. And I'm thinking two of the primary ones are your relationship with pain and your relationship with pleasure. Mm-hmm. And it means being able to become more acquainted with pain as a very broad spectrum term uh, and potentially having a arm's length distance with pleasure. Or um, not being in control of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Uh, you know, and under the categories of those two relationships, recognizing uh, now I can develop a relationship a with myself, um, and you know, my own body, my own thoughts also with other people, also with the world in general, also with, you know, a variety of other entities. Yeah. Well, there's that instant gratification moment Mm -hmm. and you know, the, the best part about getting cocaine is getting it and everything (laughs) after that, it's all downhill. Mm -hmm. Um, and what that kind of really shows to me is, you know, it may take longer to get what I'm trying to achieve in sobriety, but the effects last longer. Like, yes, I can go and attain a substance of choice and I get it and like, okay, like this is going to be great. But in, you know, roughly three to six hours that it, that experience is going to be over. Whereas if I'm going to school per se, you know, I, I'm going to get my, my bachelor's degree and I, I work really hard for two years and like, yeah, it was a really long trip up there, but that's something I'm now going to carry with me for a very, very long time because it's an achievement. Like, yeah, it took longer to get there and there isn't that instant gratification moment because that's one of those things that kind of come up with a lot of people that I work with. 
um, specifically when they haven't ever engaged in any type of recovery. They've only been using, it's their first treatment experience or they're interested in kind of finally taking a look at why it's a destructive behavior in their life. So what kind of comes of it is like, well, what am I going to do that's going to make me feel better right now? And one of the main coping skills that is underutilized is talking and crying. Mm-hmm. You know, those are two very powerful things that we almost forget in yeah. early recovery that these are tools that I can use. Like raising your hand, there, there's no embarrassment to just ask, like, what is a coping skill? Because some of us in addiction, we get that far away from who we are that we don't even know how to cope with what's going on just inside. Yeah, we don't know how to cope with what's inside. I would say maybe partly because we don't know what we're actually capable of. Also, I don't know if we fully know just how many options are out there. Um, Like if we got, you know, three people in the room and like did the scatter chart, you know, fill up a whiteboard with like all the ways we could cope. I mean, we could do it like three or four times easily, probably because there's a lot of things and, Mm -hmm. You know, out of you know, if our habits have not been to explore and try new things, then we don't know those things. Yeah. But that can be part of the recovery process is uh, an exploring process. Also, it's a big identification piece, definitely at first. Um, you know, and it's why, as a person that does the job that I do, I I start talking about aftercare usually in the first call. You know, I get that phone call from somebody that had my card and they referred them to me, and they're trying to basically navigate this process because everybody looks great on the internet and you know i can easily just call my insurance and find out who's in network with this or what do i have to do to kind of get this process going i treat every call like i'm the last person you're going to talk you know i might and i may i may be i might be the fifth phone call where you know i have ohp and i just i can't figure this out or i have private insurance and i can't figure this out Because both have their challenges. You know, with OHP, I might have to wait a few weeks to get into treatment. With somebody with private insurance, they may not have $3,000 to go to treatment. Even if I give them a couple of weeks, they may not be able to come up with that. So both present their challenges. And my job is to kind of help you walk through that process. And I'm not talking about the right here, right now. I'm talking long term. I speak to it with the families. Like, have you thought about doing any outpatient care while you were loved one is in treatment. And most of the time, no, 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 I'll be okay. Okay. Well, call me in a week. And when I call back and I do my check-ins with them, I typically see I'm bored. I don't know what to do with myself. Like, well, the the thing that revolved around your entire life is gone. Well, I worried about it. I had to take care of them. I had to worry about her. I didn't know where she was. She was out doing this. (laughs) And I, I didn't know where I could find him. Well, now that that piece is gone, a piece of their identity is gone too. And we talk about it being a family disease, but when we want to engage the family in family recovery, right. they're like, what? <laughs> right. Yeah. I, well, I, I, I totally agree with you because I don't have a lot of addictions experience in my own practice. The only time I'll use um, my clinical tools, like the neurofeedback on addiction are if it's like everybody's an Al-Anon and everybody's an A, you know, they're an AA and they're in treatment and they... And they get like three letters from three therapists stating that they're in action stage of thinking like I'm pretty because mm-hmm. I because I just don't have like I, I just don't believe I have the best scope for it. Yeah. So so I I usually make ridiculous demands like that, but but it's very validating no, it's, it, and it's totally valid. I mean, when you're beginning those processes, like I want the individual to kind of know what to expect, right? Because the last thing I want them to do is 
look at treatment as a 30-day spin dry. Mm -hmm. First of all, treatment in general at a residential level of care is not a failure. It's a complete opportunity. It's giving you the ability to go through what you're going through with a team of support to get you back to where you should be, you know, and that includes a medical detox. Like let's get you completely detoxed and then let's have you working directly with professionals that have experience with this subject that can help you address co-occurring, that help you address the trauma aspects. So because the long-term work is not done in residential facility, but it definitely sets you up with a great solid foundation. And that foundation is going to give you that springboard to go off and work with an outpatient therapist in more long-term settings, because that's really where the, the work is being done. You know, we can help them identify trauma triggers. We can help them identify like, hey, this is our long-term goal for your mental health this is what you should expect from if or any medications are being used. However, though, it's that continued work after they get done, after they come back to their the area that they choose to move to, whether it's back home or in a different location, those aftercare settings are really what's going to help people continue on down that path into recovery. Because it's very much a path and not a, not just a, it's very much a journey, not just yeah. a destination. Oh, it's definitely it's a marathon. A, it's not a sprint. Yeah, right. it's the, right. you're spending your whole life essentially regrowing your brain uh, and the rest of your body and well, the, your whole life. Um, but, but it's, a, it's a very much like a lifelong process that you're engaging in and you, yeah, you need supports like the same way any of us need supports to be healthy in any regard. Um, yeah. Any, any journey needs. Well, I, 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 again, I don't have a lot of experience in addiction, but I, I do specialize and work with dissociative disorders, like multiple personality disorder. That's something I work with. And I think we were talking a little bit earlier before we even started about how, you know, we talked about there being parallels. Like we talk about the addiction as being like its own personality, yeah, something you have to learn to contend with and corner. Um, and then I think I've heard some psychologists say starve, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like you got to weaken those networks so they, they don't, they can't, you know, take so much control over your life. Um, and I, I, I know with the, with the theme of this uh, uh, podcast, um, it makes me think about like union psychology, which is the, uh, which I don't fully grasp this at all. I'd love to know more about it, but he talks about, you know, when there's change, we, we associate it with death. And I have clients that do that without any prompting or education whatsoever. And so I'm fascinated by that concept. In fact, with certain disorders, they always think of feeling as being associated with death to the point where. Like that's not, that can't be a coincidence and there, there must be something there. Interesting. Um, but you know, the way that you describe kind of even transitioning, you know, geographically or, or the amount of change that you have to have in order to corner this. Um, I don't know. It's like, uh, there's death and rebirth. I don't know. It feels like that. It, it sounds like something that's been spinning in my head for a few weeks now, you know, and not even well, about addictions. Take, <laughs> if you ask anybody really like, if I gave you an opportunity to go for 30 to 45 days to go just work on yourself, yeah. would that be something you'd accept? And that's really what residential treatment is. Yeah. It's, it's an opportunity to completely start over. Yeah. Um, and really that is something that you can take through for the rest of it because we're trying to identify who we are, right. our likes, our dislikes. You know, we're learning, we're meeting really yeah. a new person and when we stop using substances. And, and I, I, I know that we, we talk about this as being like an addiction thing, but just like you said, it, 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 it doesn't have to be, you know what I mean? Even it doesn't have to be. It's, it's like, would we accept that? Would we do that? Like, are there ways uh, that we have to 
change who we are or, or be reborn or <laughs> be transformed, you know, um, in any other mental health spectrum, Yeah, you know, and probably like, I think, I think they, there doesn't have to be barriers between these kinds of therapies. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm 100%. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that it takes a variety of different types of support mm-hmm. to help somebody. And being a person in recovery that uses 12 step programming, to me, it doesn't matter if you find that support in church or refuge recovery, wellbriety, smart recovery, traditional AA or NA. It's again, it brings back to that social piece to it of where do you feel comfortable going? You know, who do you feel that you can connect with? Mm-hmm. And through that, it's, you know, you don't want to trade one addiction for another. You know, I don't want you to go to six meetings a day just holding on. Maybe at the beginning you might need right. to, but you know, <laughs> it feels okay as if it's the temporary. years go by, you know, you want to have balance and yeah. that's, you know, moderation is not something that people in recovery do really well at, you know, where yeah. it's a hundred percent, you know, tank flying down a mountain. <laughs> yeah. But you want to grow into your sober self, whoever that is. And it's the person who needs to be discovered. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's not a person who's in meetings, you know, all day, every day. It's the person who has wildly different interests and values and relationships than they did before and is able well, well, like, I think to be present there. Being in meetings, like for example, if we said that your default mode is just so unbearable and that we go back to that by choice, you know, or, you know, but we're there one way or the other, um, you're going to be miserable. And, and, and if, if the only coping skills you can have or, or that work are group, then yeah, you're probably going to do it every day. Yeah. And, and that's going to end when I assume you build coping skills that can replace it. Yeah, that would be my view. Okay. So then um, speaking to the clinician, who am I talking to? Eh. <laughs> so speaking to the counselor and they're maybe they're trained in addictions, maybe, maybe not, but they're working with somebody on severing that relationship with, with an addictive something. Um their, their clients gotten to the point, they, they recognize, yes, I have this toxic relationship with this substance, this behavior. I want to break this relationship, do something with it, start something new. What are some ways that a clinician can help that person? That's, that's a great question. Um, I wish there was a one answer, solve all, like just say this to them and it'll be like, I'll go to treatment. <laughs> Darn. Um, <laughs> so there, there's no magical formulation, uh, you know, I'm a, I like motivational interviewing a lot. Um, and really it's, it's about rapport. We know that successful outpatient therapy is about building a rapport with our clients. And I utilize my own personal experience to kind of help people know that it's a safe environment to, to kind of unload. Um, and what I do with that is I basically take the person to the next level one piece at a time. You know, when I disclose to them, like I used to use this much a day and I really kind of, some people I have to really delve into and say like, okay, so what's your story? I told you mine. And you could almost hear that. And then it comes out creating a vulnerable spot for the individual where they feel like, okay, not only can I be vulnerable in this moment, but I have 30 to 40 minutes to pull myself back together you know, right before they walk out the door is not the best time to try to open the box up about addiction. But you definitely want to create that opportunity where most people in addiction that I've met anyway, they've had that 1% or that shred of willingness to do something about their problem. 
we just want to kind of know what that looks like. If I, if I dip my toe in, are you going to push me in? And the answer to that needs to be no. I'm not going to push you in. Eventually, we will begin to talk about that process more fully about what it looks like and how it can be beneficial. And that's always the approach that I've used because, again, it's an opportunity to do something about what is essentially destructive. You know, when it comes to a counselor working with an individual, even if they are in active addiction, and sometimes we don't even find that out for some time, you know, three, six months, or maybe a year may go by. And all of a sudden you're sitting there in session and they're like, you know, it could be my drinking. I drink every day. And the clinician just is like, oh, okay, that's a valuable piece of information that was left out. But really what that client just told you is, I finally feel comfortable enough to really tell you everything that's going on. And that is a pretty remarkable moment. Yeah. I, I've never been there, but I'm sure it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, but yeah, creating the creating the report, creating the safe space for the person to to take that step to say this relationship needs to end. That's pretty pivotal. And when the client leads you into that that journey, then and you are kind of walking next to them, slightly behind, um, then then they can go pretty pretty fast and pretty. Yeah. That we can make a lot of growth. Well, that window opens and closes so quickly on the willingness to do yeah. anything about it. You know, just acknowledging it sometimes yeah. could be okay. We're done for the week. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah, I think I, I get that. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so, thinking some specific ways to to walk with a person through terminating that relationship. I know. So we referenced, you know, our title. You know, the farewell letter. You know, common exercise is you know write a write a letter to your drug of choice your whatever it is you know essentially like my you know the breakup letter like mm-hmm. goodbye i hate you this is all that you've done and like curse 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 but you know and also boundary 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 and stuff like that um mm. that sort of letter i mean it's a it's a frequent fixture in the recovery yeah. process interesting yeah many many treatment centers do it um I used to have a little fun with it during groups. I would either, you know, bring in a mirror yeah. um, or I would have them draw what they look like on a whiteboard in the middle of group and talk directly to themselves. Wow. And as they were high and I would tell them, draw yourself high. Huh. Um, you know, there's usually a variety of different structures that kind of generate somebody's willingness, you know, whether it be financial, social, mental, emotional, um, maybe religious or spiritual and legal comes in the mind, you know, and it's usually a multitude of those different factors that are going to generate somebody to the want of like, okay, I got to do something about this, you know, and sometimes, you know, your higher power shows up with a gun and a badge and other times it's an ultimatum from the husband or the wife where we need you to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, however, that initially comes Many times the person of concern is going to have that sigh of relief like, oh, my God, I can finally take this mask off for a minute. Yeah. Yes, I have a problem. People that are especially blackout drinkers, you know, they that shame and guilt of protecting, you know, my precious alcohol is something I want to do. Like, I don't want you to take this away from me because deep down we know that it's bad. We shouldn't really be doing it this much. But 
we don't know of any other way to live because it, again, it's progressive. It doesn't happen overnight. Nobody just sits there and turns around and is like walking down the street. Like, hmm, I wonder what it's like to smoke meth, you know? And I'm sure maybe that might happen every once in a while, but the, you know, the day drinker doesn't become a day drinker overnight. You know, it's progressively happens in these things where people fall into these pits that now socially, we also can't talk about this. Like, I can't go into work and tell my boss, like, you know, I'm having a really big problem. Like I've been drinking every night because I am so stressed out about this job because that's my livelihood. And I can't go to my husband or wife and tell them like the the kids are running me up a wall and I only spend half the amount of time that you spend with them, you know? So we try to come up with these ideas of like, how do I work with what's going on in my life? And for positive or negative, we turn to a coping skill and, you know, the addict or alcoholic has those increased tendencies where it just affects us differently. You know, the, the hooks are stronger in my mind than it may be to a quote unquote normie. Yeah. But if you put somebody in, you know, a rough enough situation and then you give them a substance and it helps them, you know, anybody can turn into an addict. It it does not discriminate. That's true. For time's sake, we'll have to start to, to wrap up a little bit. But as a, as a last question for, for you, Michael, uh, as we talked a little bit about what addiction is, what that relationship to the substance of choice is, and a little, little bit of how to work with a person in, uh, in breaking that relationship. Um, but let's touch on again in your particular role and position. Um, what is it that you specifically can offer to uh, clinicians here in the Portland area yeah. who are running into people who've got problems. Like even my own clinic and maybe even Reese's, we have a large practice and we don't do addiction work. We definitely don't do inpatient. <laughs> yeah. No, um, the services that I offer are in some cases, like I'll meet a client face to face if they're willing to do that. Other times I'll talk to them while they're in session with their clinician, just to kind of talk to them about what their options are. Because we have to make decisions based off of what's clinically appropriate. Right. Um, unfortunately, we also have to take a look at what's financially appropriate because, you know, treatment is, it comes at a cost, whether it be socially or not. Um, we have to work with where the individual is. My purpose and my job ultimately is to help the individual walk through any ambivalence they may have towards treatment. Mm. Um, also to help them walk through the process of going into treatment. But my overall goal for them is to wake up and know what it's like to have sound mental health and not need to drink and use. Because I think that's really the greatest gift you can give anybody. Mm. Now, when I'm working with a clinician, it's about keeping them updated and letting them know, like, I want to get them ready to work with you at that level of care. But before we get there, there's some things we need to address that may take a little bit more intensive work. So is that like um, running a clinical practice for you or is that um, like a, like what, what, what role is that specifically that you're providing? So it's a, basically it's a mm-hmm. production of business development. Okay. So, you know, we have a variety of different names. Um, we don't call it marketing because that's not really what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I do work for Recovery Ways yeah. and, you know, I chose to represent that company and they yeah, chose yeah. me to work for them right. because 
we have very similar thoughts and ideas of what addiction is and what treatment looks like. And I don't speak for that company in any way, shape or form, but I do represent them here in Portland. So clinics like ours or other referral sources, like we would reference you or call you or refer people to you based on a belief that they were ready to go to treatment or that they were open to going to treatment or uh, would you add anything to that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, from that point, I would work with them for okay. sometimes it's a shotgun wedding and yeah. I need to go to treatment today. Yep. yep. Um, and then other times <laughs> it's, you know, we're going to talk for a few months, you know, okay. we're going to kind of build our rapport to let okay. them know, like, because we are taking them out of their yeah. environment. Would they still see their other therapist that was referring or would it be? I would highly, or, and highly or, encourage. Yeah, okay, perfect. Yeah. Okay. Just very curious. I want to make sure I understand Absolutely. the rule. Because uh, it's not unusual for a clinic of mine to, to be like, oh, hey, I should call him. <laughs> you know, that, for me, that could happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to call you or where can people find you on the web or in the world? So um, I actually, you know, real easy to remember. I'm a guy from Jersey that lives in Portland that places people in Utah. <laughs> so it. it's, uh, I there's do only have, one of you. <laughs> yeah, there's only me. Um, and I could be reached directly at 908-590-2333. And that's, you know, a line that I'll answer at two o'clock in the morning or two yeah. o'clock in the afternoon. It's just, I get to do the part of my job that I'm passionate about and the part that I love. And that's helping somebody walk through this process of going in the treatment and helping them get sober. And I get to do that when I'm engaged with other therapists and other professionals in the area. Yeah. Cool. 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 Say that number one more time. 908-590-2333. All right, folks, you heard it here first. Well, thank you, Michael, for being here on the show and for talking and Josh, it's just good to see you anyway. <laughs> thank so, you. <laughs> um, that was great. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you, listener, for listening. And we'll be back again with more Smart Counsel. Take care. We love your feedback. So let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Counsel on Facebook at, at Smart Counsel Podcast, on Twitter at, at Smart Counsel 601. And you can email your questions to Smart Counsel Podcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore.